more people that we came to talk about it, the more we realised that there's only one point of view that's being presented of the epoch of terror that we're living within, and that's the narrative presented by governments. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington, D.C. today, and joining us from London are Kathy Scott Clark and Adrian Levy, award-winning investigative journalists and filmmakers who worked as foreign correspondents and writers for The Guardian and The Sunday Times. They are co-authors of the new book, The Exile, The Stunning Inside Story of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda in Flight, which was released last month. And calling in from New York is Murtaza Hussein, a journalist for The Intercept, covering national security, foreign policy, and human rights. ER listeners, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So I wanted to start off talking about the the construction of the book. Um, What was so amazing for me as I started to read it was the obvious access you had to the people that the family members and the people around Osama bin Laden. Can you talk a little bit about the origins of the book and putting together and getting access to the sources? I guess it all started um, shortly after Osama bin Laden was killed and we are regular visitors to Pakistan and were there working with the army, in fact, doing um, doing a, uh, a documentary in Waziristan. And I just kept thinking the wives and the kids are still here. They were being held by um, the ISI, the intelligence services, in legal detention. And I was just desperate to know what they had to say about their experiences, what had happened on the night he was killed, had they been with him all the way through, what did they think about 9-11. So gradually I kind of got close to them through um, a local journalist and eventually got to speak to them and to meet them. And that, I guess, was the beginning of the story. And from there, we then sort of said, well, we can't just do a kitchen sink drama. We need to kind of know a bit about Al-Qaeda as well. So we put together a list of who was still alive and not in Guantanamo and potentially accessible. And it was quite a short list, but um, we went from there. Yeah, it's quite amazing. You talk in the beginning about how what differentiates the the narrative we have about al-Qaeda from other political movements, even in modern history, is the control around the source material, source materials that have been, for instance, captured by the Pentagon, by the U.S. military, and also control of the people themselves. Um, so that presented quite a unique challenge for you as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the uh, the more people that we came to talk about it, the more we realised that there's only one point of view that's being presented um, of the epoch of terror that we're living within, and that's the narrative presented by governments. And because of the limitations of reporting um, and investigating and writing inside a prescribed insurgency, an inscribed terrorist outfit, if you want to call it that, um, like Al-Qaeda, um, it means that very few books have come from within it, and instead the uh, the prescribed narrative, the narrative of governments and analysts um, is what you're left holding on to. But it's more than that. I mean, really, there's been there've been some superb books to come out of the epoch of terror. I think of Lawrence Wright's Leaming Tower, which I personally um, loved. And before that, Steve Cole's great work on the 1980s in Afghanistan, the first great big j- uh, jihad. But all of those books are largely speaking police procedurals in the sense that they take uh, the perspectives, not Lawrence Wright's, but uh, certainly the others that have come out of uh, the present epoch, take the perspective of the FBI and the CIA. And we've always wanted to see the other side to, if you like, reconstruct Al-Qaeda's corner, um, see the view from their, from their viewpoint. But, I mean, another element of what you're talking about, I think, is as we just got further into the book and the research of it, was we discovered that so much material that was out there 
had been uh, locked away and classified and not not even properly gone through. I mean, most of the documents, I think million plus documents that were recovered from Abbottabad, mainly on sort of memory sticks and, and hard drives, have never, ever been properly classified, read, indexed, and, and, and they're not going to be released at all. I mean, we've only had, uh, I think it's a hundred, a few hundred documents letters from bin Laden have been released. Right, and the, and the documents that are available, including the trove captured by the US military um, in, in Iraq, were reclassified uh, where the Pentagon refused to roll out funding to continue to place them on show at the National Defence University. So there was, um, yeah, Cathy's totally right, there was the, uh, the inability to access source material and a point we also make in the book that the prisoners that are held, the detainees that are held, um, are silenced and cannot themselves be interviewed. So we have a situation of an absence of documentation, an absence of primary history and absence of protagonists who can describe the story and so yeah those were in fact a lot of the um, the uh, the reasons the uh, our thoughts the impetus behind creating the exile one last thing for me I mean there was also also that the kind of the very forthright media campaign on behalf of the American administration in terms of pushing their version of the story so so collaborating on um, zero dark 30 the movie giving access to to very senior people who've been involved in the actual operation and then censuring individual um, seals who who went off and wrote books and did TV interviews because they had kind of like stepped outside the sort of the bounds of not speaking about it so I mean there's double standards on all sides let's talk for a second about what you did find. I mean, what was amazing for me in going through the book was in some ways it's a family history um, with the tales of the wives and the children. And let me actually turn to Murtaza for a second. Murtaza, you recommended this book as, you know, sort of really strongly to me. And it was a great recommendation. What what struck you about the book that you felt it was so important? I mean, uh, Cornwall said earlier, it's just such a untold history of this period, uh, because as was said, so much of what we know about this era is told from the perspective of the CIA or the FBI, the U.S. government, uh, but it's narrated from the Al-Qaeda members and their families' perspective. And like to the title of the book, the period is about the exile that happened after the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. Most of the book takes place in that, uh, in that epoch. And the lives of people, Al-Qaeda members and their families in Iran and Pakistan is described in great detail in this book. And especially in Iran, this is a completely opaque government. We had no insight into their thought process or what those Al-Qaeda members and their family were doing there, what their lives were like. Uh, It really shined a light on a history which is completely untold. Uh, And I was actually curious. Some of the best parts of the book are interviews with the former religious uh, leader of Al-Qaeda, uh, Abu Hafs Mortani, who lives in Mauritania now after having sort of escaped the post 9-11 dragnet. What was his uh, motivation for speaking with you and how eager were they to tell their story? Because it's quite an incredible story which has never been told before. Um, he initially was not reluctant. I mean, he, he agreed to meet me um, quite quickly after I made an ap- approach through a Mauritanian journalist and I was very surprised that he would actually meet me and I was quite worried about going over there because I didn't know anything about Mauritania, I'd never been there and this is in the middle of all the kind of kidnappings and beheadings of journalists in, in Syria but he gradually opened up, I mean it took several trips, I went there three times and spent kind of a week on each each trip. His motivation I guess was wanting to stay relevant and stay in the game and being arrogant um, and wanting to kind of place his 
name in history. Yeah, I mean, he, he he's now living in Waxhop with his family. There's not a lot happening, although he is a kind of a bit of a local celebrity there and he speaks in the mosque and, and has a lot of visitors. But, but I guess he wanted to reach out to the world and tell his story and and since I've last seen him he's now kind of he's now gone on Twitter and is is being more and more active. He was slightly cagey at the beginning because he had done a deal with the Mauritanian government when he came back that he would a speak to a US embassy delegation made up of um I think almost certainly um FBI or CIA people um and he would b keep a low profile so he's kind of gradually re-emerged and luckily we got in there at the beginning. But I think there's also from him and from others a strong desire to retell their story through their own prism, through their own lens and the feeling that they've been caricatured or even lambasted, um, poorly drawn in uh, previous books. I mean an extraordinary range of materials out there with the wrong names, uh, the wrong family relationships, the wrong dates, the wrong episodes. Not only that but as uh, as you pointed out, none of us really understood or knew the entire parallel kingdom of the entire parallel world of Iran and yet here was a man who created the uh, the diaspora the the movement the sanctuary if you like of al-qaeda family members and their and their council the movement uh, from Pakistan Afghanistan into Iran but also he lived um, then under the patronage of the revolutionary guards council in Iran along with the other imprisoned members of of that caravan and so it's extraordinary first-hand material which totally changes our viewpoint as to what they did how they did it and who their patrons were let's back up for a second tell us about that Tell us about the time in Iran and about the quote-unquote tourist complex. Well, they, the family, um, Azama's family, so one wife and lots of his children and in-laws and grandchildren. Mahfouz Abu Hafs Mauritani went first. He negotiated the sanctuary. He, he got together with uh, Major General Qasem Soleimani, who is the head of Quds Force, who took control of the Al-Qaeda contingent and said, yes, come. And so he, he went first. Then some military council members of Al-Qaeda went next, uh, including Saiful Adil, who is still very active today, having been released last year straight to Syria and then the family came and they gradually were sort of all put together and ended up in the main training facility of the Quds Force which is in North Tehran near to the former Shah's palace, Sadabad Palace and they were initially held in different blocks in sort of old um, military sort of recruits accommodation and then they, everyone fell out with, um, with the authorities and they got better accommodate it gradually got better and better so by the end by sort of 2008 2009 they were living in what they called the tourist complex because each family had a separate apartment and they had a garden and there was a swimming pool and there was a gym and a doctor and a dentist surgery on hand so it was it was it was quite nice by the end um, and but there's, an, there's an interesting tiny little prologue to this which is that um, when uh, Mauritani goes over and he begins uh, the negotiations with the Iranians um, at that time it's no means certain that they'll offer sanctuary to Al-Qaeda there, there's a period of conflict, there are reformists who are rising and those reformists have reached out to the US and there was a big delegation for example that was over at the Bonn conference, the conference that got Hamid Karzai in 2001 December that got Hamid Karzai shooed in as the new president of post-Taliban Afghanistan and Iran was the key activator in that and tilting really, really uh, tilting forward towards the US. So when when the Mauritanian turns up in Tehran, unbeknownst to him, he's come at the worst possible time, a time when um, uh, Tehran wants to reach out and wants to form normalised relationships with America and with Europe to a certain extent. And yet, while he's there in January 2002, George W. Bush makes 
the axis of evil speech, the State of Union address in which he lumps Iran in with the so-called axis of evil powers. And that creates a moment for the hardliners in Tehran. Uh, the reformists are seen as having achieved nothing. They've come through the bomb process. They've offered huge amounts of help, and yet nothing has been achieved. And so uh, the Quds Force, the Revolutionary Guard, are in the ascendancy, and they embrace um, al-Qaeda. They embrace Azama's family, the military council, as cards to play for the next decade to come. You know, another part, too, is that that uh, half the story is based in Iran, but uh, bin Laden and his family was in Pakistan during this time. And I noticed in the book, going through the footnotes, you had a lot of access to uh, Pakistani officials speaking about that era. And I know that from for many Pakistanis in the government, it was a very sort of bitter and cagey period. Uh, and But they also opened up to you and told you their perspective of what happened. And it's always been a big question, how much did they know about uh, the presence of bin Laden? Well, what did you glean from those discussions? And uh, what they were trying to convey and what they did or didn't know about that period. I, th I think, I mean, getting to talk to, to, to mainly generals um, was something that, that had taken a long time. I mean, we'd been working in Pakistan on and off for 20 years so and had written previous books in the region. So I think we had a kind of bit of a track record which got us got the, us the foot through the door type thing but uh, initially people were quite cagey and it took many I mean my passport has got something like 14 Pakistani visas in it from the last three years it took quite a lot of effort to get people to talk sort of fairly candidly yes and it's a question of momentum building you know like uh, one person talks and then they ring ahead to uh, uh, you know to the next person and that you build up this sort of uh, unstoppable uh, snowball effect where people don't want to be left out of the retelling of their own history <laughs> or have someone else tell it for them you know there's quite a lot of concern and worry and back watching that goes uh, that goes on there and certainly you know contrary to what appeared before and having got to nearly all of the director generals of the ISI and also having our own sources within uh, the intelligence service um, and the traditional more conventional military a different kind of picture emerged one of a more chaotic country where not everything is homogenized or unified you know the intelligence services are very very disparate and fractionalized they don't all operate in a top-down way uh, they're very dysfunctional and you know the idea is laughable that there was some kind of azama desk you know with a sign on it where you know there were guys in a red phone and they were creating policy on the hoof you know, instead, we've described it as a, a, a ball of wool where you get retired officers. You're no longer actually sure if they're being paid by the military. They were with our side, but now they're fully fledged um, officers working in jihad fronts in Pakistan that are allied to Al Qaeda. And all of this makes it incredibly difficult to untangle relationships. But in fact, um, you know, in a quite a few honest discussions, we heard descriptions by the RSI of how disappointed they were in their own efficacy. Their reputation vastly outstrips their, their efficacy. I mean, when I eventually got to sit down with General Pasha, who was the head of the ISI at the time of the operation. He said I couldn't put his name in the book. I couldn't say that I'd interviewed him, although we had an interview. And it was just, it was quite clear. It was quite clear. And I hadn't already made my mind up, but it was quite clear from, from what he said. He had no idea. He really had no idea. And neither did General Kiani, the head of the army, that Osama was sort of sitting in his house less than a mile away from the Pakistan, the military academy in, in, in Abbottabad. And if you look at what they did, how they responded to the to the raid and the killing and the announcement by Barack Obama in Washington that Osama bin Laden had been tracked down to a major, sophisticated city in in within town. yeah within well within sort of an hour and a half or how many hours drive from from Islamabad, I think it was about more more like three. But they just they just shut down everything 
I mean, I had a really interesting uh, couple of sessions with um, the head of ISPR, which is the um, basically the press office for for the army and the um, ISI, aka PSYOPs. Yes, um, and General Athar Abbas, who um, who had spent sort of the next three weeks just being, as he said, being bombarded by a million phone calls from news operators all over the world. He said it was an absolute nightmare because his phones were hot um, and all of his deputies were looking at him to sort of make a decision as to what to say and he kept texting uh, Kiani and Pasha and saying, look, we've got to say something, we can't just sit here and they just, they wouldn't let him make a statement for four days as they kind of went around mopping up and arresting everyone from the milkman to the baker to the neighbour to to the first policeman on the scene in Abbotsford. To the gardeners, to the tree cutters, to the journalists. I mean, nearly everybody in any way associated disappeared and either turned up dead or was exiled semi-permanently from the country. Their clear-up was ruthless and brutal, but everything that went before was appallingly amateur. Well, let's talk about the the 2011 raid for a moment. It's fascinating how you integrate the narratives. I mean, we have no easy day that the Navy SEAL first-person narrative. We have different versions out there and you combine it with also your own interviews. And in, it's, in some cases, there are things that are hard to resolve, as you point out. What were the most surprising things or the things you found that either challenged or changed the narrative of what happened that day? Well, there are, there are some extraordinary things that came out. One of them, um, um, undoubtedly, was the fact that Hamza bin Laden, who's now appro- uh, emerged as the youthful uh, voice and figurehead of resurgent al-Qaeda, uh, one of Azama's sons, um, who's now made five or six statements um, uh, behind the digital campaign, We Are All Azamas. Um, he um, had visited the house um, shortly before the raid, um, and um, he was uh, uh, he arrived to find everyone on tenterhooks extremely paranoid. Um, and his father, who'd been dying to seeing uh, to see him and writing constantly, uh, checking where he was, um, gave him dinner um, and then shooed him away. And it appears that he um, had left the house. Um, shortly before um, SEAL Team 6 arrived and they arrived and initially reported that they had killed Hamza bin Laden but in fact he, um, his wife Mariam um, and their two children were hot-footing it out of um, Abbottabad to um, safety in uh, Waziristan we believe. That was one surprising episode. The and second, then the person who was killed was his, was the older brother Yeah, the Khaled. person who died actually was Khaled, his older brother not Hamza as, 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 as was declared. And the other thing that was um, astounding um, in the build-up to the raid itself was the fact that the Guardians the Kuwaiti brothers um, who had been responsible for looking after Azama, they um, actually had become fed up of their job, no longer wanted to be the babysitters. That's an understatement. Yeah, one of them one of them was extraordinarily ill, basically had had a nervous breakdown. The other one had developed a vicious form of cancer and they'd served Azama in 2010 with an eviction notice. The, their wives had put them up to it and said, we cannot stand this anymore. Get the guy out of the house. The house guest you never wanted. Yeah, yeah. right, the house guest well, we the, never wanted. The point Absolutely. they made to him at the time was, look, we started looking after you in 2002 when you had one wife and one baby and there's now something like 20 people right. living upstairs. Right, so uh, but Zama then triumphantly comes back to Amal and the, other, and the other women in the house and says, I've done us a great service, we won't be evicted and instead I've won an extension for the household and we can stay till after the 10th anniversary of 9-11 is commemorated. And so he gets this by until the end of September uh, or the middle of September um, 2011. 2000, and of course, um, that, um, that uh, he's do- singing a, a dance about that in about February or March or April of 2011. And four weeks later, three weeks later, the raid will happen. 
So um, the the pressures on the household were extraordinary. Certainly, the, uh, you know, the build up, and perhaps the third uh, most gripping episode was the release of the family from the parallel kingdom of Iran, where where they where they they've been left, and uh, tracking with the letters uh, the movement of the sons, the wives through Waziristan. Um, Saad bin Laden, um, he tragically was killed. Uh, but hang in, on, you're going back in time. That was 2008, yeah, 2009. Yeah, I'm going back in time. Uh, Saad bin Laden would be killed in a drone attack. Um, and then Kyria, one of Azama's favourite wives, would make her way into the house. Um, and just before the raid. Just February. before the raid. And uh, what the correspondence shows us and what we know from our interviews is that everyone suspected that she was a dupe and that she'd been uh, allowed um, out by the Iranians who were working with CIA to track her to the house in Abbottabad. And so on her journey, as she tracks through Waziristan, these letters begin to leave the house more and more frantically. Get your teeth checked, get your body checked. A listening device can be the size of a rice grain. The paranoia is building. I don't think you can say that the Iranians are working with the CIA. Well, no. They were looking for an opportunity to get something with which to manoeuvre a better relationship with the Americans. Yeah. So I was fascinated by the initial reference that you had in the book about, you know, the idea of a tracking device in, in a filling. I mean, is there any evidence that there was a tracking device on her? Well, the family believed that, that, they believed that there it. was. And um, I mean, she had she's quite a lot older than he is. And uh, he was she was the most regular visitor to the dentists in the tourist complex and had big problems with her teeth and had a, had a lot of work done. Um, so so I think that's that was kind of the source of one of the problems. And she, I think, in the letters she wrote to Azama once she was kind of on the move and on the way to him, she uh, acknowledges that she needs to kind of just double-check and go to a dentist in Peshawar, uh, which is what she did, and just make sure that there's, there's nothing in there. She'd have to have all her fillings taken out again and, and, and reset. So um, I think everyone was very worried, but the family remain quite angry with her because they feel that she should not have come uh, given that everyone was worried that there was some that she was bringing danger yes. into into Abbottabad that she shouldn't have um, been selfish and determined in that she was going to come and meet and be reunited with her husband whatever anybody else thought um, just one final thought as well. The, um, just in terms of the question that you originally asked, the other thing that emerges is that uh, contrary to the narrative built subsequently, the idea of the lion in winter, the idea of an ageing, greying Azama staring up at a TV set, possibly uh, accessing pornography, as as was written shortly after the raid, the idea of a dead, mo- a dead calcified sclerotic movement. Um, the image that you have inside the house is, uh, after doing all of these interviews and reconstructing the period, is quite different. And we've described him uh, really as being an engineer working in... In the uh, bowels of the Titanic, in the sense that he's frantic, um, his communications frantically busy. Frantically busy. His communications um, are, are enormous. He's producing volumes of letters. His his political secretary is Khalid, his son, and they're writing and writing and writing. He's getting couriers to zigzag across Pakistan, etc. Contacting um, all of the franchises, contacting the uh, the military shura, uh, the fighters and strategists. And in fact, it's quite the opposite of the image portrayed um, shortly after his demise. Now, one narrative you don't mention. I mean, at least I didn't see it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is is uh, the the sort of the counter narrative that came out through Seymour Hirsch and the London Review of Books? So, I, is that something that you just discounted, or how was your approach to that? The idea that he was essentially a prisoner of Pakistan and ISI, and that it was all sort of arranged ahead of time. Well, when when we first started researching the book, we didn't come at it with any kind of fixed fixed position at all. I mean, but as a result of all the interviews we've done over all of the years, I just don't believe any of that. Right. 
I mean, I think I think also, you know, uh, I'm a huge admirer of Cy Hirschen, so I yes, don't really want to, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, I understand. to deal I'm with sure. him as an individual. But I mean, I think, I, you know, I, I feel that we try to present a different vantage point. His sourcing on, on his story uh, was, was a different kind of sourcing. It was American sourcing pejoratively, by majority, uh, with one Pakistan source who we, who we have in common. Um, and um, what we were trying to do was to get the story told from the people within the House, within the Shura, the Council, within the religious and military uh, parts of that, and then reach out to the broader diaspora of al-Qaeda members and do that slowly over five years. And so I feel that... Um, we, we were coming at this with different methodology, um, a different approach, and we saw no evidence that he was captive. Quite the opposite. I mean, Kathy and I described um, him being loaned a cloak of invisibility. That, that, that's the metaphor that we, we sort of came up with. Various jihad fronts that work very carefully with the Pakistan deep, the deep state in Pakistan, the intelligence and military establishment, loaned him invisibility, kept investigators away, you know, shrouded him in this little snow dome um, inside uh, Abbottabad. Um, and he, he he was not a prisoner. You know, he, he actually left the house on on, on quite a few occasions, mm, as far f- as we understand. A few occasions. Yeah. So it's quite quite the opposite narrative emerged, emerged uh, you know, to, to, to that one, certainly. Let's talk for a moment about the rise of the Islamic State. Um, you have this wonderful quote in the book about al-Baghdadi saying, quote, was a former policeman who had made ends meet before the U.S. war by repairing televisions and dishwashers really now more important than Osama bin Laden. Um, how, how did al-Qaeda react to the rise of the Islamic State? That that quote relates to um, the predecessor to uh, Baghdadi. Oh, sorry. Thank um, you for the correction. But yes, but yes, uh, they were very worried because, and, and, and Azam was very cross. I mean, there's a whole series of letters that he exchanges with his um, deputy in the tribal areas in 2010 where he's saying, look, the Islamic State have gone ahead and they've the, the former policeman got killed and then Baghdadi sort of seized the moment and the opportunity and pushed himself forward and became um, the uh, caliph. And, uh, and Osama was furious and he's like, well, look, this, 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 is, a, this is an organisation which was started by al-Qaeda. It belongs to us and, and yet they're appointing sort of new leaders and going off on their own track. We need to get them back back on sort of back on side so he he sort of demanded a big biography and cv of baghdadi who was he where had he come from but um i mean they never really resolved that because baghdadi really went off on his own and then post azama um he took money from zwahiri who took over took over al-qaeda and then basically tried to kill all of the al-qaeda people in syria he also offered huge bungs huge bribes i mean there's there's extraordinary stories of him approaching um abu qatada and makdisi two noted um al-qaeda leaning jihad scholars in jordan now in jordan um and offering them a million dollars um to step aside oh. more than a million dollars to step aside for uh, for islamic state for daesh and he did the same um with uh, the franchise in yemen they were offered four to ten million dollars uh, to quit Al Qaeda, uh, yeah, and Al Shabab as well um, to come. So the you know the, they were trying to lubricate all these deals with this enormous slush funds, um, and uh, you know buy over the great figureheads of Al Qaeda to Islamic State. And the slush funds were from where? Well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, obviously, they they had access by that stage. They were actually an operating state physically. So they had access to oil revenues. Uh, They had access to um, the uh, the treasuries of of the huge areas that they colonised. So, you know, I I believe we could say that's petrochemical millions. 
So, uh, one thing I'd just like to say at this point is is on that front, I mean, it became clear and, and interesting but alarming and frightening to, that this is all a business. Um, jihad is a business for these mm. people and they're all in different camps and they're all looking, they've all got their eye on kind of where's the money coming from? We need to get the supporters to look at us and not someone else. Mm. We get the cash flows with that. The cash comes with that, and um, well, so when you were talking to people like MacDC or Katada, I mean, it's quite clear the whole thing is a business. So, how is the business doing today? Well, this is this is such a fascinating um, state of play right now. I mean, um, people um, are talking um, right now as as, as the Islamic State loses um, uh, control uh, geographically, territorially, but takes Tora Bora. But you know, yeah, as as as, as seems to be apparent, they seem to have uh, th- their franchise in Afghanistan, as far as we understand it, has taken control of Al Qaeda's um, old redoubt, Azama's old redoubt, Azama's old redoubt in Tora Bora, the caves of Tora Bora. Um, is Islamic State. Um, th- there's a lot of talk about um, many of um, its thinkers, um, uh, ideologues and fighters merging with Al-Qaeda. It was raised originally as an idea um, by um, intelligence services um, in Iraq in April. And since then, um, we've been talking, um, Kathy has spent a long time talking with MacDizzi and Qatada in Jordan, and lots of messages have been coming through Jordan, suggesting that there may well be a new kind of hybrid organisation, Al-Qaeda Point Four, whatever we're on now, which contains elements of both organisations. I mean, Al-Qaeda is resurgent. They have never done better, and they've done it by being less cruel. Yes, and 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 and, and they use, they're using Hamza, the son who survived, who escaped before um, at the Abtabad raid. They're using him as the kind of like the youthful front, fronting videos with his audio statements saying things like "We are all Azama," and it's very interesting talking to his his siblings about what he's doing now and uh, and they're all very upset about it and and they're desperate fearful for him yeah. desperate well he's just had a baby with his his wife who is um his, is with him and um and they just desperately want him to shut up i i know that the book ends i mean before sort of the rise of donald trump and before the election but would it be could i ask you a little bit about that how do you think al qaeda views that response to it does it but, I mean, how are they sort of playing it in their own interests? Well, I mean, you know, that, 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 that's such a that's such an interesting question because these are these are massively finely tuned, pragmatic and strategic decisions that are being taken on the ground. I mean, if you look alone at uh, the way Iran has worked, Iran has been thinking um, in decade in terms of decades. Iran has not been thinking in three year electoral cycles you know, or three and a half years before, let's say, someone begins campaigning for presidential. So the Quds Force, you know, they had a plan which they began to put into place in December 2001, and that plan was running right up until 2016. Um, And so these finely tuned, pragmatic decisions that are taken on the ground, I think, will withstand the sudden uh, shocks and bolts that um, are thrown from D.C. I think they probably welcome the chaos, um, because um, in that chaos... Uh, that we've seen through um, the mixed messages coming through with Saudi and Qatar and the isolation of Iran, etc. Within that chaos, there's more there's more manoeuvring that can take place on the ground. Um, and the reality on the ground is that is that everyone is far more pragmatic. Sunnis are together with Shias fighting. Um, we have America backing forces it would never have backed before, even giving uh, uh, some support to Hezbollah when Hezbollah intervened um, uh, in Syria. And now we see that Quds Force, uh, you know, the uh, the shock troops of the 
the sheer of the sheer superpower um, were, were definitely working at a certain point with Al Qaeda, a prescribed Sunni outfit. So these subtle little shifts and balances in the movements of power, um, I think they welcome the uh, probably the noise and chaos that's emanating from DC. So final question, really to all three of you. I mean, will we see a resurgent Al Qaeda? I think yes. Yes. Rataza? I think it's uh, unfortunately undeniable. That's interesting. Well, I wanted to thank all of you for joining me here. The book is really wonderful. And more importantly, it's it's a page turner and a page turner in a sense you don't expect of, of learning about the family members and about some of the issues that, that drove the people within Al-Qaeda. Um, thank you for joining us on the ER and please join us next time. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori. For more information about FP and to subscribe to The ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.